0: welcome to the how to be awesome at your job podcast the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work enjoy more career fun wins meaning and money with your host pete makaitis hello and thanks
1: for joining us for episode 832 with dr christina maslach we are talking burnout And Christina is really one of the pioneering researchers, in fact, even popularized the very term burnout as it applies to us human beings. So we got a boatload of wisdom coming from her. You'll learn, one, why burnout isn't just an individual problem, two, the six key areas of job mismatch that cause burnout, and three, what to do when you are burnt out. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep832. And if it's your first time listening, welcome. So good to have you. I recommend you start at the beginning in terms of checking out the episodes sorted by earliest. So you can see episode 000 start here and then ABCDEF to give you a little sampler of the sorts of topics that we talk about to get a good feel for what we're all about. Welcome. So good to have you and so good to have Dr. Christina Maslach. She's a professor of psychology emerita at the University of California, Berkeley, and the co-creator of the Maslach Burnout Inventory, the most widely used instrument for measuring job burnout, and has written numerous articles and books, including The Truth About Burnout. In 2020, she received the Scientific Reviewing Award from the National Academy of Sciences for her writing on burnout. In 2021, she was named by Business Insider as one of the top 100 people transforming business. She also consults on the identification of sources of burnout and potential interventions. Big thanks to Christina for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free At LinkedIn.com slash be awesome. And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash beawesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Christina.
2: Christina, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here.
1: Well, I'm so excited to talk about your latest work, The Burnout Challenge, Managing People's Relationships with Their Jobs, which I understand is hitting lists, which is really cool. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Thank you. We're very thrilled.
1: And I'd love to ask, I understand that you didn't set out to become a burnout expert, yet you ended up one. What's the story here?
2: Uh, Yeah, burnout found me rather than the other way around, I think. This was back in the 1970s. I had gotten my PhD. I'd gotten a job at UC Berkeley, and I wanted to start out doing research. Uh, I had been doing laboratory research on emotion. And when I got to Berkeley, they didn't have a lab ready for me to use. So I thought, well, I'm going to go out and talk to people I was thinking about how do you deal with intense feelings when it's important for you to be calm and cool and do your job, and how do you understand all that? So I started talking to people that I thought might experience this on the job and give me some ideas that I could then test out in my research and what would happen. So I was talking to people, what we would call now first responders, people working in the ER, police people, social workers, teachers, and so forth. And as we finished up the interview, I was often asked, could I tell you some more things that you haven't asked me yet about my job? Mm -hmm. And I'd say, yeah, sure. That would be great. Sure. It's confidential, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they started telling me other things about the work that I hadn't really understood or heard about in the same way. And after a while, I began to hear the same kind of rhythm, the same kind of pattern, the same kind of story from people from very different kinds of occupations. And I'd ask them, you know, do you share this with me? Oh, God, no, we don't. You know, you have a. How do you talk about it or or think about? It? Is there a name? Well, I don't know. You know, kind of thing. So I tried finding concepts in the research literature that I thought might be relevant, like dehumanization and self-defense, where you treat people like objects rather than human beings. So is that it? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Well, medical sociology talks about detached concern that you have to have when you're a healthcare provider and working with a patient. You're concerned, but you also have to sort of back off and be not too involved. Nah. No, well, I don't know how you do it. No, Okay. So then the second serendipitous thing happened, and that was that I was at a dinner for new people to the Berkeley campus. And I was chatting with the people on either side of me. And one of them was a woman from the law school. I described a little bit about what I was doing to her. And she said, oh, my God, I don't know what you call it. But in legal services, poverty law, where I just came from, we call it burnout. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So then when I ended the interviews, I'd asked, What about dehumanization? No, no. Detached concern? Uh, uh, Uh-uh. How about burnout? Yes, that's it. That's it. That's the (laughs) word. And so it just became something that I just got intrigued by because that was where the word came from. People resonated to it and said, yes, that captures what I'm going through and, and feeling. But people would get angry as they talked about things. They would cry sometimes when they talked about things. It was clearly something that was really, really important for people And I kept thinking, I'm stumbling across something that I hadn't been prepared for, but this seems like it deserves some more attention. I got to find out what's going on here and see if I can understand it better. So the first paper I ever published, I couldn't get published in an academic journal because they thought it was pop psychology. Hmm. But I ended up publishing it in a popular magazine at the time called Human Behavior. And at that point, it went, what we would say today, viral. This was before internet though. So I was getting sacks full of mail in the department office from people saying, oh my God, I've read your article. I thought I was the only one. Let me tell you my story. And so it just exploded at that point in terms of people being interested in the phenomenon or saying, I know what this means. And I want to share that with you as well. So- it just sort of grabbed me along with everything else I was doing in research and and just decided, I need need to study this some more and figure out what's happening. And if we can learn something about it to prevent it or help people deal with this, then that would be a contribution that would be important to make.
1: Well, that is a very rich story. Thank you, Christina. And and I'm thinking about almost like how etymologically speaking, I'm thinking that they say someone like discovered the Beatles or whatever. Well, the (laughs) Beatles were talented that, you know, they didn't invent the Beatles, but, but someone realized oh this is a thing and and made it huge and, it, and yeah. so in effect like you are sort of the equivalent discoverer <laughs> uh, yeah. of of burnout maybe not so much like nah, yeah go figure this is a phenomenon that affects humanity but rather oh we, we have uh, some themes and mm-hmm. some language and poverty law huh i guess that's yeah. where the origin story i never knew
2: <laughs> that was one but actually if you look More broadly, I mean, that was my personal origin story is that other woman. And in fact, I did an interview with her, which was amazing. And and I've cited her as well because she was so uh, good, thoughtful about all this. But if you look at the word burnout, it was appearing earlier. There were burnout shops in Silicon Valley in, in the 60s, 70s. There was burnout in engineering language. I mean, I'm the daughter of an engineer who did work for NASA on rarefied gas dynamics, and rocket boosters burn out, and light bulbs burn out, and ball bearings burn out. So there's a much longer history that goes before anybody was connecting it to something about the job. Mm-hmm. So even the word stress comes from physics, engineering kind of stuff, and you know the load yeah. you put on like a bridge, and under what conditions will it the bit the bridge handle the load or will it break, or some sort of thing like this. So I'm actually not the discoverer of the word. I certainly discovered people who were applying it to their job experience. Yeah, But there was even a novel, Graham Green wrote, A Burnt Out Case, back in 1960, I think it was, or 61. So there's longer roots.
1: My wife and I met at a book club that was reading a Graham Green book. Fun fact. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about burnout. Tell us. Yeah. You've had a role in popularizing the term for usage in, in humans in relation to their jobs. Mm-hmm. With all this, this research and, and history, any really striking discoveries you've made about burnout that are, are maybe not so well understood or counterintuitive to folks?
2: Yeah, that's a good question because I think uh, for a long time and certainly still now, the really dominant response to burnout is to say, what's wrong with the people on the job, it's looked at as an individual problem, a weakness, an illness, a medical condition. And so somehow you've got to be cured or treated or sent off to a doctor, a psychiatrist. Uh, you know, what's wrong with you? And often the solutions, when you ask the question, who is burning out? are, well, what do we do for our people? Maybe we take Fridays off, or we'll shut down the company for a week, or maybe we need to do some other kinds of things, and it's fixing the people. Actually, what you're doing is focusing on the effects of burnout, but you're not looking at what's causing it. And that's a different question. That's why are people experiencing this? Not just who they are, but why? And when you look at why, then you're looking at What's the causal factors? And it turns out that burnout is a stress response to chronic job stressors that have not been well managed. So it's a management issue. It's like there's stuff on the job, chronic. The important part about that is it's most of the time. It's high frequency. It's a lot. It's always there. The stuff that wears you down, it's the pebbles in your shoe that are always getting in the way and making you uncomfortable and posing little obstacles to just getting the job done on time and do it well. And what we know about stress and coping is that it's much harder to recover from chronic job stressors or chronic stressors, period, than it is for what we call acute stressors, occasional, you know, oh, we've got an emergency. Oh, there's a little crisis but then we recover get back ready to go again and get a good night's sleep and etc so what happens with burnout is that it's not just stress the exhaustion response and people often use the word burnout to mean just that I'm so tired I'm burned out no burnout is when you're not only stressed and exhausted don't have another you know energy to do anything more but you are becoming incredibly negative, hostile, cynical, take this job and shove it. So the whole job situation, the conditions, the people, the things you have to do are really, you are getting very negative about that and doing the bare minimum rather than trying to do your very best and still get a paycheck and get out of there. And a third component intertwined with all of this is you may begin feeling negative about yourself. What is wrong with me? Why am I here? Maybe I made a mistake going into this kind of, you know, career. Uh not proud of what I've done. Maybe maybe I'm not really good at this. You know, why why should I do it? So when you get that trifecta, that triumvirate of the exhaustion of stress, the cynicism about the workplace and the sense of, you know, your job ineffectiveness, that's burnout. That's when you go numb. That's when you start having other health problems. That's when you quit or figure out how how can i hang in there and so the quality of performance of the work that you do is going downhill and uh, you're not being really much good to not just the people on the job but your family or friends or you know anybody else so it can have rippling effects beyond the workplace
1: okay so that's how we know we got it we're in it we're in the midst of it that's mm. the the view so what are the root causes
2: well, what we have found, when I say we, I'm talking also about my co-author on the book, Michael Leiter from Canada, but also researchers around the world who have been doing work on this uh, that led to the World Health Organization recognizing job burnout as an occupational phenomenon. And what we have found is that there are at least six areas in which the match or the good fit between people and their job are really critical if there's a better fit, better matches, then people are more likely to be engaged with work and satisfied with it and feeling good about it. If there's really big mismatches, gaps between people in the job, then they are more at risk for burnout. So the six areas are, and they're not in order of importance at all, they're probably just in terms of how well known they are. One is workload, and there the, the mismatch is high demands but really low resources. You don't have enough time, equipment, colleagues, information, whatever it is to get the job done and meet the demands. But often more important is the second area, which is control. How much say, discretion, autonomy do you have to do the job the best way possible, to course correct if something unexpected comes up? And when people talk often about their workload, they're saying it's an uncontrollable workload. I don't have any say about how much I have to do and when, where, and da, 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 da. So control is important. Third area is reward. And what that means is positive feedback when you do something well. So it could be salary and benefits, but it's also social recognition that people recognize. Thank you. Pat you on the back. Say, wow, thank you. Really saved that meeting with that client. I mean, that was, that was really good. Or maybe I could, you could give me some tips on, on doing this. So you're getting a sense that you're doing a good job. People know you are, and you have new opportunities, perhaps. Fourth area is the workplace community. And that means all the people whose paths you cross in some fashion during your work. And are those relationships one of trust, uh, mutual support? We figure out how to get together on the same page. We have different points of view. We help each other out. We, you know, mentor each other. We have, good times and celebrate when things go well. Or we work in what is often called these days, a socially toxic workplace where you don't know the other people well. They're aiming to throw you under the bus before they do anything that's helpful for you or you for them. There's bullying, there's uh, harassment between people on the job, incivility, people not treating each other well. And we have seen that area of socially toxic workplaces really growing even before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Fifth area has to do with fairness. Whatever the rules, whatever the policies, whatever the practices, are they fairly applied equitably to that people who did something special get the next opportunity or the office with the window or or promotion comes fairly, uh, as opposed to people who are unfairly cheating line to get ahead. Brown knows the boss. The goodies go to the wrong person. The award process here is rigged. The people who really do something special never get recognized, that kind of thing. And that can build a lot of the cynicism of burnout if you feel that you're working in an unfair place. This is where, by the way, discrimination lives, where glass ceilings are. It's not a fair environment in which people are moving ahead. And finally, the sixth area is values also talked about is meaning. And I think more recently people have said purpose, but it's the sense that I'm doing something that is important, makes a difference. I'm proud of the kind of work I do. The values of of the organization and where I am, you know, are in line with what I think is, is right. Or I'm in. If for burnout, I'm in a job where there are ethical conflicts, where I'm being pushed to do things that I think are wrong, or not to say something when I see something that should be reported because it is illegal, or doing things that just so go against my vows. This is not why I went into medicine. I've got to get out of mm-hmm. here because it's not just about making money. I want to be in a place where I'm really helping people. That I that that's why I want to do this kind of work. So those six areas can give you a sense of what's working well, but also what things are not working so well. And those can then give you some thoughts about, okay, how do we make that a little better? How do we deal with the chronic stressors in fairness or values or reward or whatever, and improve the conditions so that people are going to thrive in that workplace rather than get beaten down?
1: Mm -hmm. And what have you found to be some clever best practices,
2: best practices? <laughs>
1: or approaches to bring uh, matching back in action, maybe either on the employee side or on the employer side? Both. Yeah.
2: I mean, rather than making it either or, which is a tendency people have, is it the job or is it the person? Is it the boss or is it the employee? It's both and,
1: mm-hmm.
2: all of them. And in many ways, you when it says that job stressors have not been successfully managed, It could be managed by the individuals, by the team, by managers, by professional organizations. There are a lot of ways in which things could be altered or changed or ideas can be proposed that how about we do it this way? How about if we redesign intake so that we don't have this kind of problem that we all complain about? Maybe it would be better if we, or no, how about if we do it in this way, which would be a rotation? Well, how about if, but come up with ways of identifying the chronic job stressors and what are the various options that we could do to get rid of them, modify them, make them less intense in terms of negative outcome. There's a lot of ways of doing it in terms of, for example, we have a lot of examples throughout the book in the six areas saying, here's what different kind of places did and tried. To improve the match there, and one of them involved fairness. Which when we did an assessment, this was a organization that had about eight hundred people. It wasn't workload, it wasn't reward. To the surprise of the C suite, it was fairness. And they're saying, "What do you mean? People think we're unfair." And they were looking and asking people, "What's the problem?" They found one thing that everybody hated, really hated, and that was a distinguished service award that got you an extra little bonus check. Hmm. And it was kind of like, wait, money? And it was unfair because people said the wrong people get that award. Okay, They haven't done anything special. They didn't get a promotion. So they went to their supervisor and said, can you help me out? Okay, I'll give you the award instead. Or it went to the leader of a team and the team members who actually did all the work of the special thing, don't get anything, just the leader. Or, I mean, there were like 50 reasons why the the award was considered so unfair. People hated it, didn't want anybody to know that they might be nominated for it. So once that was kind of, we presented the results of it and said, this is what you guys said, they put together a group, a task force with people from different levels of employees in different units to work on it and come up with a better solution. I mean, the first thing was to point to the CEO and say, fix it. And he said, I didn't know we had a problem. You better help me, you know, figure out what to do. And it was not easy at first. You know, there's all different kind of things you have to consider and come up. But they came up finally with a proposal for how to really recognize people who'd done something really special. And it was voted on and it put in. And when we went back a year later, to do some follow-up interviews because we were following people over time, that fairness issue had dropped out because people said, okay, now we're doing it right. And also saying in the interviews, if we could fix that, guess what else we could fix? It built hope, optimism. Hey, we could actually think of ways of making our working life better by identifying the problems and doing something about it.
1: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, that's really counterintuitive and good to know. (laughs) (laughs) that your intentions might be nice, but in practice, things can get abused such that that recognition harms more than it helps.
2: Yeah. And fairness, if you think about it, really, it's a really important core psychological need, social, psychological need that we all have, everybody, human beings. We want to be treated fairly in life. We want to be treated fairly in court, for example, legal Mm -hmm. system, even if we end up not winning a case let's say in the legal system if we feel we've been treated fairly then we'll be okay with it just to take it back to a small example from my own career i teach a lot of students in classes and sometimes they'll will come in and say oh i think i got an unfair grade on the test or on the paper and well i think i need p- more points and i'll set up a process and other people do too we'll get somebody else to do a new grading not knowing what the original one was. And whatever that second grade is, it could be better, it could also be worse. And you can lay out what you think entitles you to more, you know, a better grade on that. And then you let them know, here's what a second independent person said. It could be me, the teacher, as opposed to my teaching assistants. And then it's like, oh, okay, got it. This is why you didn't get the full thing here. Or yes, we should have given you more recognition of what you did. But the fairness of the process is critical, that it's not being biased, that it's not being slanted in different ways towards some people and not towards others and and that kind of thing. So the fit that we're talking about here is a more psychological fit with these core needs like fairness, belongingness, psychological safety. Much like we have always been for many, many years, we've always been concerned about the fit physically between the body, human body, and the chair you sit in or the computer station. And we've redesigned those so that you don't blow out your fingers and wrists with carpal tunnel syndrome. So it's like recognizing that the human body functions best if supported in certain ways. And how do we change the environment to better fit and support the body doing whatever the work is? what we're finding is same principle exists when what is the things that make people feel competent and getting better at their job and feeling like they're a part of a good team and being treated fairly. And those matter a lot.
1: Hmm. Okay. So much good stuff. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious if one finds oneself burnt out, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what do you recommend the very first steps? One, two, three about where to go from there?
2: Well, I think one of the first steps is to realize that you may not be alone. There may be other people who are having similar issues or problems or whatever. So part of it is to find out a little bit more about, do other people share some of these responses to these chronic job stressors? If you're the only one, then it may suggest to you, this is not the place for me. I better go somewhere else. But if there are other people who are also, doesn't have to be burned out necessarily, but are also struggling with the same, Duh, we don't have the things we need to do the job well, then it's a way to sort of shift from me to we and say, how could we do this better? People often ask you, I have to go to my supervisor or you know, manager and, and say I'm burned out and can you accommodate me in some way? And I'm saying, no, because I think that's just going to make it more your problem and stigmatize you that, you know, that's not the way to go. But if we could say, how do we put in a process for our unit, our team, our, you know, whatever the sort of reasonable grouping is here to handle some of the problems we're all feeling about an unfair procedure, how could we make it better? That's a different question than what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me. And so having a a little bit more of, of a social power somehow, or to ask that as part of the regular meetings we have, do we have something where we can periodically check in, like having an organizational checkup instead of a medical checkup? How are we doing? What are any signs of problems coming along? You know, the world's changing. Do we need to actually rethink the jobs a little bit because we're not quite on, you know, so having a focus on how do we make it better actually allows for more thoughtful action and collaboration and customization to to actually improve the job conditions. And that's ultimately what will prevent burnout rather than just helping people cope with it, because coping doesn't usually change the sources of the problem.
1: Okay, thank you. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, <laughs>
2: I think just just to sort of reemphasize the point that burnout is as much about the job conditions, the social environmental conditions, as it is about the people who are in those conditions doing the job. And we have to look at both. Getting a better match, a better fit can involve changes, redesign, thinking new things on both the person side and, and the job side. And particularly if it's things that are affecting more people, a lot of people. It's important to look at that. What we have seen recently in, say, Gallup polls, both for this country and for globally, is that the vast majority of workers say they are not engaged with their job. It used to be about, oh, about 30 percent, only 30 percent. I always used to wonder about the other 70. Mm-hmm. Now it's dropping down to 20 percent globally. Yeah. People are not engaged. So it's like, you don't have to focus on the extreme opposite of engagement of burnout. People all along the middle of that continuum are also not so happy with their work. So the idea of how do we make the job better? How do we evolve? We didn't see COVID coming maybe, but we had to adjust to that. But in five years, the world probably is going to be different from what it is now. We're still going to have to adjust and figure out What do we not need to do? What could we do differently? What is the most important stuff? And how do we just kind of rethink this job and not just keep doing it the same way it's always been done?
1: Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: I think one of the things that has always been important for me is something that I think I I learned being raised. Um in a Quaker tradition, and it was not what my parents had been raised as, but it was something that they chose at that time. And one of the things about that is that the sort of the general beliefs about other human beings are the assumption that there is always some good in everyone and your job is to look for it and make sure that it, whatever you can do to help it blossom even more. And so, rather than just sort of saying, "Oh, these people are not good; they can't do the job, they've got a problem you know da, da 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 saying, "Wait a minute, there could be ways in which they could be really valuable assets, and you invested in them and hired them, and how do we make what they've got to bring come out and really make a good contribution on that and it may be different in different kind of cases, but I think that basic philosophy of always looking for What's good in people is, is something that has always been a part of my research and teaching. And so it's like, how do I, if I learn something, if, if I found out about something, how do we pass it on and make it usable so that things can get a little bit better?
1: Okay. And could you share a particularly favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: I think of, in my own work, some of the interviews that I've done with people that have really just completely changed what I understood and thought about the kind of work that they do. And I had one person who when he saw he was a practicing psychologist in a mental health clinic in the Midwest, and he read the article I wrote in seventy six, the first article in the human behavior. And as I said, that somehow was generating all kind of attention. He wrote me a letter that was one of the most beautiful letters and completely grasp everything about burnout that I could ever imagine, you know, way better than I can even think of with all the data and stuff like that. And he just put it all in these beautiful, amazing words, which I have then quoted in my books and everything since then. And one day there was a knock on my door and it turned out it was this man who had moved out to the West Coast, had decided to get his PhD, he had a masters but he was going to get a PhD and go into practice and he has become an expert on treating people and you know helping people deal with burnout issues and he is someone who had been at the darkest point of burnout and ended up having a life that was really great, overcame all these things and was able to make a good life and to help other people better understand what they could do about it. So, knowing those kind of stories what's possible? That kind of thing really has given us a much better understanding of what burnout is all about. Okay. And a favorite book? When I was young, my friends and I became enamored of Nancy Drew mystery stories. And it's been interesting because it's always been, there's something happening and there's clues and you're trying to figure out what it is and can you come up with a solution and and come out with an answer that might prevent bad things from happening. The other thing I would say is that again, as a young child, somebody gave me a children's book of archaeology. And I fell in love with archaeology. And again, you're looking for clues. You're trying to understand how people lived in earlier years in different places. And I discovered later on in life that Sigmund Freud was a great admirer of archaeology. So I thought, oh, okay, this is good.
1: All right. And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job?
2: Well, I don't think of it as a tool, but I think of it as a, a critical thing for, for what I do. And that is getting at least one other pair of eyes on what I've written. Mm-hmm. We haven't got a, a tool yet that really quite does it, but it's like an, a really good editor, a colleague, somebody with a different point of view who, who kind of looks at your writing and says, have you thought about this? Why don't you say it this way? I don't understand that example. And then talking with them about how they're seeing it and what I said and what I'm trying to do, and maybe it's not coming across clearly and stuff. So I just find that that kind of interpersonal sharing of work and having different people weigh in on and giving me feedback is probably the most important thing that I've had in the work over the years.
1: All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: I would point them to my website at the University of California, Berkeley. The psychology department, and there is a listing there. I'm I'm now a, an emerita professor, which means that I'm retired, but I'm still actively involved. And so that would be the psychology department at UC Berkeley. Also, I would recommend the Healthy Workplaces Center at UC Berkeley. I'm, I'm a a researcher affiliated with that, and I've learned a lot more about the workplace because. In that center, interdisciplinary center, I get to talk to architects and designers and economists and all kinds of other people who each have a different kind of perspective and point of view and contribution to make to what the workplaces look like and how they function and how they go about doing the kind of work that they do.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I would say that the challenge is really to see this as a continuing process of how do we get better at supporting people doing the kind of work that our society needs. Uh, So, and and I think this is a particularly important challenge now because – I'm hearing about all kinds of people who are leaving jobs. They are not going back into nursing or being physicians. They are not going back to teaching. We need teachers. We need doctors and nurses in terms of our health and well-being. So the challenge of designing a better workplace is the answer to burnout rather than trying to figure out what's wrong with people who get too stressed and burned out by the job. There's a larger lesson of how do we get the best return on the investment that we make in people and their contributions to all of our society, and that means really focusing on the environment and the the job conditions and that situation as well as on the training and the feedback and that stuff as well for the individual employees
1: all right, well, Christina, thank you. this has been a treat. I wish you. Much luck and fun and very little burnout.
2: Thank you. I wish the very same to you and everybody else. (laughs) That's a great way to end.
1: I love what Christina had to say about those six causes. It's not all just workload, but workload, control, reward, community, fairness, values. I love a nice, tidy set of categories to help diagnose what could be going on here because the solutions may look very different if it's a workload issue versus a fairness issue. Great stuff from Christina. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to attitude reference are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep832. Hope to catch you next time and peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com.